Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Tara Chapman is a beekeeper and beekeeping consultant from Central Texas. She left her decade-long career working for the CIA in the Middle East to begin her company, Two Hives Honey, near Austin, Texas. This was a fun episode for me. It was kind of a Honey Bee 101 course. We discussed the basics of bee biology and hive dynamics, their pollination role, their importance to the global food system, and the threats facing our bee populations, as well as some of Tara's experience in counterintelligence. To start your own hive or to buy some amazing local honey, head to twohiveshoney.com. Hope you enjoy it. Tara Chapman, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, I've been, uh, I heard about you from my Aunt Wendy. We were just talking before we started recording here. Um, My aunt has been keeping bees now in their backyard for a few years, and she said, you've got to meet my bee lady. And uh, so I looked you up, and um, you've got a really interesting story. Uh, but before that, tell me about Two Hives, your your business, and what you guys do. Yeah, so we are a honey and full-service beekeeping business. We're in Austin. Our headquarters is just a few minutes east of Austin, and we do honey. So we do what we call hyper-local honey, so small batch. We harvest everything by neighborhood. We can tell you about the bees um, that produce the honey of every jar and where it came from. But then we also do um, experiences and education. We love gifting the wonder and knowledge of bees to folks. And so we have a honey ranch just outside of town where you can come and you could do a tour or a honey tasting class. We really just love connecting with people and sharing our love of not just bees, but the ecology in general. So we do lots of like agritourism as well. Yeah, yeah, I love that. When did you start doing this it's been a few years now right yes so i lose track of time but i think i actually quit my job six or seven years ago so i started as a hobbyist just like wendy i always tell people you know be careful (laughs) two (laughs) hives today and then you know next week you're quitting your job very irresponsibly um so i started (laughs) i had started with two hives with a friend that's where the name of the company comes from and um was a hobbyist for just a few months, was looking for an exit strategy from the work that I was doing. And um, anyway, I had I had taken this beekeeping class, started these hives, had what I thought was kind of a clever, fun idea for these neighborhood honeys. I just thought, man, you know, different flowers make different honey. So when you harvest honey in really small batches, you really get the wonder, like the grocery store tells us honey's a commodity and it is far from it. Um, and so I had this idea, was planning to go to grad school just to escape my day-to-day life. And the night before I was to take the GRE, I applied for a grant for my business instead and just skipped the GRE altogether. And so that's how we ended up here. <laughs> wow. So a couple of things there. So you said 
different flowers make different honey, not necessarily different bee species. I, I had thought when reading about the hyperlocal idea and the different neighborhoods, I thought it was kind of like you're using different bees in different areas. I wasn't even thinking about the the flowers and the pollen affecting the the flavor has, as much. Yeah, it has everything to do with the floral sources. So bees gather nectar from flowers to make honey. There's this misconception by most that pollen is what makes honey. There is pollen oh, in <laughs> there is pollen in the honey um, if it's raw, but it's nectar is what makes honey. And so, um, yeah, and different flowers have different, you know, nectar flavors, colors, textures, water content, and all of these things make a difference in terms of what the honey tastes like ultimately. So it's all about the different flowers. So different neighborhoods will have different flowers, but you also throughout the season, you know, it's a regionality, but it's also seasonal. So the things that bloom in the spring are different than what bloom in the fall. And so our spring honey is very different from our fall honey across the board. Wow. And so you could be growing, uh, or, or, you know, beekeeping a mile away from a different property and just get a really different kind of flavor profile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And depending on how much nectar, you know, how many of a certain bloom that you have. So if you have tons and tons and tons of one single source available, so like, you know, bees will fly up to three miles um, if they have to for forage. So like we have a yard that has 50 acres of mesquite blooming in July. That's a big nectar producer. So we get a single origin, like we get a single, you know, the all the nectar from that harvest is from the mesquite. Yeah. But in like a more urban environment, like for Wendy's hives or any of our urban bees, you don't have a ton of a single nectar source. I mean, in fact, bees do really well in cities usually because they have lots of different diversity um, and a lot available to them. And so you get what are called, um, you know, multi floral honeys, but they're no less interesting than single origin because think of that, you can have an infinite combo of honeys, right? If, if one honey has, you know, 20% sunflower and 30% bee balm, and then the, the rest is just native wildflowers, that will taste different than if you had those numbers flipped. And so you really have this infinite number of combinations of different honeys that you can get even just a mile, even hives next to one another, you know, they might be gathering from different places. It's really fascinating. Yeah. That's super cool. It's kind of like wine, you know, every, you could have two hills next to each other with a slightly different um, mm -hmm. terroir and you get a completely different flavor profile. Exactly. And, you know, with wine, they actually can do a lot after to change the flavor. They can take the same grape and have all sorts of like magical wine behind the curtain tricks that they do that they can change the flavor. Beekeepers can do what are called infusions. So that can be confusing to folks because if you see lavender honey on the shelf, it could either be actual nectar that comes from lavender flowers, or it could be another honey and the beekeeper has added the flavoring later, right? So like uh. when you see like, I'm trying to think of like a great example, but you've got people that do like strawberry cream honey, like obviously that's an infusion, but beekeepers can play with different like oils or, you know, additives later. We do very, very little of that just because I think the honey in of itself is so interesting. Like we don't even need to 
play around with it. We do yeah. one infusion a month at the Honey Ranch. Like we did a chili piquin last month because who doesn't love a spicy, spicy, savory honey, you know? Um, <laughs> but most of what we sell is just all with the bees. But you can add, you, know, you can fiddle with it a little bit too. Can you provide them with a an artificial source like you would with a, a hummingbird feeder and then infuse that with a flavor and that affect the honey? So you can feed bees and plenty of beekeepers, you know, not like, that I would encourage this. Yeah. I'm you have wondering. to, depending on how the, you know, the weather cooperates or doesn't. So like this year has been a really, really, really tough year for bees in Texas. Um, and so if they don't have enough access to natural forage, you know, feeding sugar water will keep a hive alive, but people do it, but it's not a best practice to feed. If you feed bees sugar water, in great amounts so much that they're just storing it in the comb you may as well just drink the sugar water <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then they're not you know providing their uh their pollination role either and it's not it is not a one for one so um sugar water will keep a high from starving We're, i'm thankful we've got that um, available to us but it does not have the same ph as honey it does not have the same enzymes and microbes and um, health benefits and all of the nutritional elements that a hive needs. You just don't find it. Um, it. They don't do the same with sugar as they do with honey. So let's talk about kind of the basics of, I've learned a little bit um, just in the research leading up to this interview, but I'm still pretty ignorant about the overall sort of uh, specialization of the hive and um, kind of why they do what they do. So can you give an overview for beginners who maybe don't really understand the honey making process and the hive dynamics? Yeah. So do you want me to talk about like the pollination portion as well, or just how bees make honey? Um, maybe both. Okay. Yeah. Kind of yeah. overall what I people should people know. I think a lot people actually don't really understand why bees are so important to our food system. So yeah. there are thousands of types of bees, you know, some are native, some are not. Honeybees are actually not native to the U S or to North America um, for that matter. Um, and all of these bee species are important because they provide what's called pollination. So, you know, most, not all, but most of our plants that produce, you know, fruits and vegetables like our food um, outside of things like wheat and rice, you know, kind of like the boring grains, anything used to make bread, <laughs> um, any of those carb kind of grains and things like that, yeah. they don't require pollination. But like all of the fruits and vegetables for the most part are going to require um, pollination. And what that means is that they have male parts and female parts and the pollen, which is the plant sperm basically has to be moved from the male part, to the female part, either on the same plant or sometimes you have female plants and male plants. And so, you know, wind can pollinate. So like wind pollinates rice, for example, like wheat, things like that. So yeah. wind does pollinate and wind can pollinate and it does a good job if the wind blows, the wind doesn't always <laughs> blow. And so plants and um, pollinators like bees and butterflies, um, even bats, um, et cetera, beetles have evolved alongside one another. So the plant produces something sweet and enticing to the pollinator, nectar. And the pollinator will visit the flower to, to draw out that nectar, which is important in honey making. And in the process, they have little hairs all over their bodies and the pollen is situated such that um, 
it, it, it rubs alongside the pollinator's body when they're gathering the nectar. And then when that bee uh, visits another flower or other parts of the flower, it will transmit the pollen and the pollen is what fertilizes it's the reproductive cycle right it fertilizes the flower so that it then can produce um, a fruit which has a seed which can make more plants because everyone's just in the reproduction game right we all just want to like reproduce and so that is pollination so honeybees are really important um even though they are not native they're really important to our food system not because they are the only ones that can pollinate that is far from the truth they are the only ones we can put on the back of semi-trucks and drive around to pollinate in large numbers. So if we all hmm. grew food, small local farms, if that's how we produce most of our food, we wouldn't need this service. But because you know California grows, Sacramento Valley feeds the world, literally, right? They grow 80% of the world's almonds, an overwhelming yeah. majority of the US's broccoli, um, and a lot of other leafy greens. And so there are not enough bees occurring naturally in nature to pollinate all those thousands and thousands, millions of millions of acres of crops. Yeah. Why is it that the honeybees are the, you said they're the only ones that can be transported in that way? Mm -hmm, exactly. So there's other bees, so there's other native species. So um, for example, leafcutter bees is a species that is native to North America. And they're really good at pollinating alfalfa. Bumblebees are really, really good at pollinating tomato plants. But because these other native bee species um, don't live in huge colonies that we can just kind of shove on semi trucks and drive around, you know, most of the native species live are solitary. So they don't actually produce large numbers of young that we can just like box up the colony and off we go. Right, so it doesn't work that. that way. And so you, a lot of native bees are used to pollinate fruit orchards in um, the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so they're used actually quite heavily there and they, they build the homes for the native species um, to cultivate them, um, but we can't pack those on trucks. Honeybees though are very easy um to put on the back of a truck and you can drive around so that means like in january february when the almonds are in bloom we could put that semi truck on the almonds and then we can move them in this big circle around the u.s and hit you know like the blueberries in maine and the citrus down in florida and they just drive this big loop all year long so that's why honeybees in particular are so critical to our big monoculture food system and their tendency to form large colonies like that is an adaptive strategy, correct, to survive the winter? Yes. So um, uh, let's see. Uh, mason bees, for example. So mason bees are a solitary. No, let's take bumblebees because they're really interesting. They, they're, okay. they're closest in how they operate to the honeybee. So bumblebees have very small colonies, two to 300 bees, as opposed to a honeybee colony is like 40 or 50,000 bees, right? Wow. So but when we move into winter, you know, the colony, it's a super organism. So the colony of honeybees itself is going to overwinter as many bees as possible. Um, and then when we come out of winter, the population will be small, um, but you will have overwintered many thousands of bees. Bumblebees work very differently. Their colonies are much smaller, two to 300, and only one single bee overwinters, and it's the queen. Wow. 
And so in a honeybee colony, the queen just reproduces. She just lays eggs. In a bumblebee colony, the queen has to do double duty. She, when they come out of winter, she has to build the nest and find the food and, you know, lay the eggs and do all of those kind of things. And then it's only when she actually has worker females in the nest again to take that work off of her can she just go back to her egg laying duty wow that's fascinating and then solitary species which is things like mason bees leaf cutter bees longhorn bees i mean sweat bees there's so many there's too many to name they actually don't overwinter um, in the adult stage at all and so what they do, their cycles are very, very short. So they might only live three or four months. Once they lay their young, they kind of go off and they die. And then the young will overwinter. And then the next spring, they hatch out to start all over again. So it's, the cycle's very different for native bees versus honeybees. And the honey itself is essentially their, their stores for the winter, right? Yes. It's so their, this yeah. nectar that the flowers produce... Um, they bring back to the hive and because, you know, bumblebees actually do make a teeny, teeny, teeny bit of honey, not enough that we could actually harvest, but, you know, I'm talking like tablespoons of honey as opposed to, you know, dozens of pounds like a honeybee colony would. Um, so they, but they have so many mouths to feed, right? And, and then again, with the native species, they might only lay 12 or 15 offspring, so they only have to gather enough food to fit, to feed these 15 little offspring and then they go off on their own. But honeybees carry nectar back in their honey crop, in their second stomach, it's called a honey crop. Um, and they de it's very high in water content, anywhere from 30 to 80%. And so they dehydrate this nectar down and it's a very, very simplistic way of describing how honey is made. Um, but yes, honey is the primary food source for adult honeybees. So pollen's really important in um, raising young in the hive. Um, it's the only protein source that's brought back into the hive. Of course, nectar and honey are just carbohydrates. But adult honeybees basically live, subsist, you know, exist off of the carbohydrates from the nectar and the honey. Fascinating. Is there any issue with, um, so with plants, oftentimes introduced exotic species, serve a role, um, but it can be a little bit short-sighted. And we find out later that they're causing, you know, larger negative effects to other, um, you know, native ecologies. Is there any negative effect to using honeybees so widely in the U.S. when they're not native? Um, Are they, in terms of outcompeting, you know, loss of genetic diversity in, in native bee species, things like that? Yeah. So there's been a lot of chatter about this recently. We actually have a blog on our website. It's a little bit clickbaity that's entitled of why we should stop talking about the honeybee. Um, <laughs> but um, in any system, there is a finite amount of resources for sure. So, but I will say the the much bigger concern for native bees is loss of habitat. So we can talk about that, um, you know, native bees and honeybees and butterflies and bats and hummingbirds are all competing for the same food source for sure. Um, but with native bees, it's much more of an issue of habitat loss. Um, it's definitely something I think about frequently, you know, we, we make our money off of honeybees. We sell honey. 
we teach beekeeping, um, but we do tons of native bee, like we just free native beekeeping classes and we sell little native bee homes. And I always joke that, you know, we're going to use what you're already interested in. When people talk about bees, they're talking about honeybees, whether they know the difference or not, that's what they're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, we, you know, we always say, we're gonna use what you're already interested in, honey and honeybees. And when we get you here, we're really gonna like talk to you about something else. And so we try, we've got posters in our shop that have got native bees. We try our best to talk a lot about the native species and why that's, arguably much more important than, you know, honeybees in so many ways. So when people say, I want to become a beekeeper to save the bees, I like try not to roll my eyes too hard because that's, that's not the answer. <laughs> you yeah. becoming a beekeeper isn't going to save the bees. Now, if you become a beekeeper and you learn more about what's really happening in our food system and how you can do better, and then you plant more bee-friendly plants that will, you know, help all pollinators, that would be great. Um, and you then maybe perhaps are saving the bees, but just you putting more honeybees in the ecology isn't super helpful. Okay. And presumably if you do introduce a honeybee colony, they will compete and, and potentially attack the, are they aggressive? Will they attack the they won't other have, colonies? No, I've never seen, you know, bees uh, like the fight like that. Honeybees will okay. steal from other honeybee colonies for sure. <laughs> That's cool. So um, let's backtrack a little bit. Tell me about your upbringing. You're from Texas. Um, tell me about kind of any, were, were there early influences that kind of set the stage for you to, to do what you're doing now? Um, yeah, and the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I grew up in rural West Texas. I grew up in a tiny farming town of 500. My granddad was a cotton farmer. You know, you do cotton oil and ranching in West Texas. Yeah. And now peanuts and wind, peanuts and wind are a big thing now, but back then it was cotton, oil and ranching. And so I definitely grew up in uh, an agricultural family, like all of my uncles were cotton farmers. Um, so we certainly, you know, spent a lot of time outside. I would do the typical like spraying of the cotton for the summer, the summer gigs, but I didn't have this like upgrading or this family where we did a lot of hiking or like family trips to national parks or anything like that. Like that was not, it was not my family. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was very familiar. And we also in rural West Texas, like it is, it's desert, right? It is pretty desolate. Um, mm -hmm. You are not going to find, you know, big food producers because you can't grow a lot out there. Um, it's real dry. You don't, we don't get enough rain. And so I had a rural upbringing for sure, but not one that, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, how to grow food and, and those things like that. What, you know, how I came to this. So I, before I quit my job and started the business, I worked for the federal government for about a decade in various capacities. Um, but I, you know, I spent time in intelligence. I worked for congressional commissions and then I worked in oversight. So all for the federal government and all with my attention towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So yeah. those were the like countries that I was working in. So I was living in DC and splitting my time between Afghanistan and DC and Austin at one point. And it was just that, you know, those are three 
very different environments. I mean, I literally had three different wardrobes, you know, to support those three different jobs. And when I was in Austin, so I had lived on the East Coast. So I went to Duke University. So that took me away when I was, I just turned 18 when I got to North Carolina and then was in DC and overseas for the next better part of a decade. And so when I was in Austin, I just wanted to be Austin so bad, you know, for those that aren't familiar, like Austin's just known for this kind of weird, funky vibe, people kind of like laissez-faire, do what makes you happy. And so I was always looking for kind of cool, unique experiences. And there was a beekeeping class that came up on Groupon, if anybody still remembers. I don't know if Groupon is still a thing. <laughs> Not sure, yeah, maybe. <laughs> It was such, it was such a big thing for so long, Um, but this beekeeping class came up on Groupon and I was like, I just remember thinking that is so weird. And I remember posting it on Facebook and being like, who wants to take a beekeeping class? And uh, a girl I knew from a coffee shop, I didn't know her well, her name was Gina. She and I went and took this beekeeping class together. And then several years later, Gina actually ended up being, she works for us, she's an employee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's how I got into beekeeping initially was just looking for unique experiences to kind of fill my time when I wasn't in war zones or back in, you know, DC where all you talk about is work and politics and yeah, that's what you do. So during your time and you were with, um, CIA, right. For part of that time. It was. Yeah. So that was my first job out of college. Wow. And then I was there for maybe like six years or so. Man, and what can you tell me? I don't know um, how much of this is <laughs> classified, or uh, what can you tell me about that experience and kind of what it was like being overseas? Yeah, so I, you know, when I started at the agency, I traveled a very little. You know, I've been like to London once, I think I've been to Jamaica once. Um, my passport was not heavy, that's for sure, with stamps. Um, And so I worked in operations though. So there's different directorates at the agency. None of this is classified, this is all on their website, but you know, there's different directorates. You've got the um, intelligence gatherers that they work in the operations directorate. So those are the people that are actually like in the clandestine service out in the field. That's where I worked. And then you've got, you know, the, the folks that actually write the report, take the raw intelligence, write the reports and send it to the policymakers. You've got every job you can imagine and then some you never even knew existed are yeah. <laughs> at the agency. They have their own doctors, their own nurses, you know, all the support systems, um, you know, logistics, et cetera. So, but I was in the operations directorate and Pakistan was my, what's called AOR, um, my area of responsibility. And so as far as like intelligence gathering in the country, you know, my office owned that part of the world. And it was a really interesting, arguably the most interesting place to work because it was at the intersection of so many things you had Counter narcotics is obviously a big thing in Pakistan. Counter proliferation was huge at the time. Obviously, counterterrorism. This was in like 2003 is when I started. Oh my gosh. And so this is just right after 9 11. So, yeah. counterterrorism, I mean, it was just a hotbed for so many issues. Um, 
And so it's just really interesting. So yeah, I did that for about six years, did a fair bit of travel. And forgive me if um, I, I'm equally ignorant about the CIA as I am about beekeeping, but um, was it rare to be a woman in that role it, at that time in, in Pakistan? Um, so it's funny that you say that because that kind of leads me to like, how, how, why would you ever quit such a cool job? Um, there were plenty of, so plenty of women that worked in the roles that, that I was working in. Um, I don't know the official stats, but, um, you know, far more men, like in all those positions, but plenty of, plenty of women. I wasn't like a rarity by any exception. And in fact, so the reason that I ended up leaving was because not because I didn't love the work and think it was super interesting and was super and super mission driven, which is I love that about that job. The reason that I left was because my upward mobility was going to continue to be challenging because I was a female working in the part of the world where I couldn't do my job. That's why I right. ask. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, you know, you know, you admittedly are like, I don't know very much about the agency, but you're like, were there a lot of women? Why, why would you put women in Pakistan or after? Afghanistan or Iraq or Saudi Arabia or any of these places, like put us in Latin America where we can work the system. You know <laughs> what I mean? But yeah, so I, the years that I was on the Pakistan desk, there were an unusually large number of women in country and I saw what life was like for them. They sat in station and they wrote cables, you know? So when like the big earthquake happened um, in the Northern provinces, they, they didn't get to go up and do their work. They set in station. Yeah. And so it's a huge sacrifice to work in that role in particular, huge. Like the divorce rate for people that are case officers is like 80%. And, um, you know, as a female, you'd have to find, if you wanted to get married and have a family, you have to find a male that is willing to follow you around the world or is also a case officer, which is just like, a bad idea. <laughs> and so um, I just, and I was going to continue to be in the Northeast, I'm sorry, in the um, Near East Division for the better part of a decade, which I was okay with that, but I wasn't okay with not being able to do my job and make those sacrifices. Yeah. So I ended up leaving and I ended up going to another government agency where I worked on issues in Iraq and Afghanistan and spent five years going to Afghanistan for a living, but it was in a very different capacity. I wasn't undercover. I was actually there in an oversight role. I was working with the Afghan government. And so I could perform my duties. There were certainly issues um, at times working with the Afghan government being a female, but I could actually do my job as I was trained. Unlike, you know, at the agency, I just saw myself for the next decade, just sitting in station and then yeah, you know, not even getting to do the work. No good. Okay. That's interesting. What, what do you think, are there things that you keep now from that part of your life and that career that you use in beekeeping or was it just a total code switch? <laughs> you know, I go to this gym and it's a bunch of special forces dudes, like former special forces dudes that run it. And one of the guys there was like, I feel like that's what you people do. You like go run operations in Iraq and then you become farmers. And it's so funny because just this morning I was talking with my fiance about this and I, the same is very similar for chefs. 
I find a lot of people that worked like in these really high stress jobs, like every week, I feel like I hear about another chef that's like quit their job to become a woodworker or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so parts that I take from from that work with me today, I mean, I just love the mission. I mentioned this before, like the mission driven aspect of that work just resonates so heavily with me and I'm constantly reinforcing that with my team you know that if we're not here doing good work let's go do something different um so like core values are really important to us everything we have six core values and every opportunity that comes through the door we run those through our core values at our monthly staff meeting every month we talk about how we've demonstrated these core values because at the end of the day money is not the motivating factor for me personally it's doing good work and impacting others in a way that I'm leaving things a little bit better. And so that's very mission driven like, and so I certainly hold that with me for sure. And then, you know, when I quit my job, my mom was so happy. I wasn't going to be going to war zones anymore. And then in the same breath, I was like, and I'm going to be a beekeeper. (laughs) She said, I'll never forget. She goes, can't you just get like a normal person job where you sit at a desk? And I was like, I just don't think that's in the cards for me, you know? Um, The work at the agency was exciting. And yeah, I just don't think, I don't think sitting at a desk is right for me personally. So yeah, that's how I ended up in the B yards. (laughs) I love it. Um, Well, let's, let's go back to the, the actual beekeeping in terms of sustaining a, colony or sustaining a hive i should say um is there a certain percentage of honey or you know comb that you extract because they've got to survive the winter right with that with their winter stores how do you keep a hive healthy and sustained over time yeah that's a great question so it's um there's definitely like a formula that we use it's not so it's and it's going to depend, like I always tell my, you know, we teach a lot of beekeeping classes and I always tell my budding beekeepers, you know, before you talk about harvesting, you have to talk about what do my bees need? So where, you know, bees don't actually have access to nectar very long. They actually can only make honey. All of our honey that we sell is made in easily less than eight weeks in the state of, in this part Whoa, of Texas, maybe six weeks. Yeah. And so you've got these very short periods of time when they can make honey. And so a single weather event can totally screw you, right? So this year it rained nonstop from mid-May through the first week of June. That is when bees make 80% of their honey. Mm. (laughs) So that's why our harvest is going to be so bad. And Um, the deep freeze, right? Oh, and the deep freeze just set us off into a really bad spot to begin with. Yeah. And so you have to first assess like, where are we at in the year? So when do we expect, and this is a lot of experience that goes into this. When do I next expect my bees to have food available and how much food do they need to get to that point, right? So it's a little bit of a gambling. You can be more conservative. You can be less conservative. I always tell beekeepers, you know, be more conservative until you learn about when the nectar flows, the period when the nectar is available in your area. You get a feel for like, how much a hive needs so stronger hives bigger hives need more food smaller hives need less food and so it's looking at what do they need to make it to the next time food's available leaving that and then whatever's left over assessing if you're comfortable taking you know what that you deem as extra 
and not every hive is going to have extra every year. In fact, there's plenty of hives that don't do well at all and you're taking honey from other hives to give to those hives if you're doing it responsibly. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, like just beekeeping is not going to save the bees, but the act of paying attention to what's happening um, in their in their specific role in, in the ecosystem, then you're kind of taking the right step forward to be yeah, a good steward. Just like understanding how our food is produced and how hard it is to make food. You know, it's really challenging to be a farmer. And, you know, whether you raise goats or you raise cattle or you grow hay or, you know, they all have their you know, like, so dairy goats, for example, like if you're raising goats for dairy, you have some serious shelf life issues to contend with, right? I don't have that, like lucky me, but they also don't rely on the weather like I do. You know, um, They don't have a single weather event totally blowing their whole harvest for the year. So mm. no matter what form of ag you choose, you've got some things working for you and something working against you. But at the end of the day, you're relying upon the animals or the weather or like us both and you can't control those you know as best we can we just can't and with climate change getting worse and worse um, it's just getting harder and harder to work in ag um, and be really successful which I I mean which is why we do so much agro-tourism one it's really fun like it's super fun and people love it people love to come out and like get to be a beekeeper for a day, you know, you just want like two hours of it, you know, that's all you need in your life, <laughs> but it's yeah. really fun and it's educational and it's super fulfilling for us and fulfills so many of our core values. And, you know, unless it's raining on that day that we're going to put you in a hive, like the revenue from that is not as reliant upon these factors that are so uncontrollable. Um, and so it's a little bit of a win-win all the way around. And so we're so thankful for the opportunity that people are interested in those activities um, out here because it really does a lot for us. Good. Yeah. Is it mostly individuals, um, sort of hobbyists, or do you have um, more agricultural, commercial outfits kind of going, hey, we'd love to integrate bees into our holistic system out here? Like, is there any interest on that side of things? Um, yeah, so lots of hobbyists that take classes, you know, lots of just people that are like, be curious. And um, they'll come out, maybe they'll do a hive tour, maybe they'll do a honey sensory class. And they're just like, intellectually curious people, which is awesome. We do have, we have a more um, intensive six Saturday over six months beekeeping program. It's a 50 plus hour program. Um, that plenty of hobbyists uh, do that as well. Um, but um, do have lots of folks that, you know, want a lot of people, a shocking that large number of people really want to like have a little bee side hustle. It's not the best move. <laughs> you know, it's, it's real tough to make money. Um, but we do get lots of those folks and I am, you know what, if I'm training my competition, so be it, but it, you have to work real hard, be real quick on the uptake and be really creative to make a good living at this. It's really tough to do. I believe it. Yeah. I'm thinking more about, um, like I spoke to the folks at Rome ranch down there in Fredericksburg, mm -hmm. you know them? Yeah. You know I, them? I set up their apiary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of people like yeah. that. Yeah. Going, okay. I think yeah. we could really help out some, uh, some landowners. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We take care of lots of bees at lots of places for lots of folks. Um, so did you meet Taylor? And, yeah, I interviewed yeah. him. I think that was episode, yeah. I can't even remember now, seven maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're so great. I was on their um, Meatcast podcast once. It's really oh, fun. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So, so they came to me through a hobbyist beekeeping class. So they, they came through, took the class, were just starting Rome Ranch and you know are so interested in regenerative ag and doing the right things for the right reasons and so and wanted to start an apiary out there so i consulted for them i went out once a quarter for a couple of years until they felt like they got their feet underneath them and every once in a while i'll hear from them and help them out a little bit but yeah we do we get folks like that that um want to you know put bees on their property because they farm or whatever but for the most part I think people are better served. Like, it's just, you know, it's so hard to do ag anyway, <laughs> to be, to be the person that's going to do all of the forms of ag. It's just, it's so nuanced, beekeeping so nuanced. And so I find that most people, even if they dip their toe in, they're like, whoa, that's real hard. And they better serve to find an actual beekeeper. They can, like, that's what we do. So we have lots of hives at farms. That way they do what they need to do. And then we do the, the beekeeping part and everyone kind of sticks to where they do their best work. You're you know? specializing kind of like the bees do, which um, I did neglect to ask about earlier when we were kind of talking about the, the hive operations, like with honeybees in particular, um, tell me a little bit more about the males versus females, the queen, um, kind of yeah. still fuzzy on all that. Yeah, so in a honeybee colony, you have, generally speaking, one queen bee. You might find a hive now and then that has two, but for in all intents and purposes, you've got one queen. Her job is to lay eggs, and she lay eggs. That's all she does. She doesn't do anything else. She can't tend, you know, she can't care for herself. She can't feed herself. She will die within a few hours if without her hive. Wow. And so physically, that's her job. She, um, what's, how is she different from the other bees? She's larger. Her abdomen is larger, particularly when she's laying. Her abdomen gets very full with sperm and very large. Um, and then she has, you know, basically every other bee in a hive minus maybe 10% are female worker bees. So females do all of the work in the hive. They're very aptly named. They do everything from collecting the food, storing the food, making the honey, making the beeswax, protecting the hive, you know, defending their, the HVAC system. I mean, they cleaning the hive, they do everything. And then you've got a very small portion of males at most. So there's times of the year, like right now, you're not going to find a lot of males in a hive because their only job is to spread the seed of the hive. So they actually don't do anything for their own hive. They go out and they mate with other virgin queen bees out in the ecology. And so, wow. um, so it's not important for a hive survival, but it's important if a hive wants to reproduce and spread its genetic code, right? And so during times of the year when the resources are very low, like the summer and the winter, they will kick the drones out of the hive. And they don't have very long lifespans, and so they'll die within a few weeks and then the next spring when we want it, we're strong enough. We feel like we've got enough resources to spare, to spread our genes. The queen will lay more drones. So the life cycle of a, of a male, of a drone 
they're born, they, <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out, the genetic <laughs> diversity here, it seems like there's a little bit of inbreeding going on. Tell me about how they avoid that. And, yeah, uh, no, there's not. I mean, if they can help it, there's lots of things in place to prevent that. Okay. So a queen's going to mate with up to um, 40 drones, but she only mates once, meaning she doesn't mate every day or every season, or every month. She mates very early on in her life with up to 40 drones. So you've already got a lot of different genetics, you know, in that hive coming from the sperm from 40 drones. And then she lives a couple of years and then she'll die and they'll replace her and that queen will go out and mate again and they mate away from their hive so they don't mate they're not mating with their own queen okay so those 40 drones um, are not products of that genetic line they're coming from surrounding areas different well know. they are so from the hive that they belong to they are the sons of that queen but then they leave the hive every day and they go out looking for other queens to mate with and they okay. do this away from the hive. Got it. Okay, so they're not mating within their own hive with mm -hmm. their own queen. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that I think I've got a better, a clearer picture now of what's going on in there. <laughs> do you like when you're beekeeping? Do you often find the queen, or is she way down in there protected? Yeah. Um. Yeah. We there's not always reason to look for her per se, but there's plenty of reasons I do have to look for her. So like this morning. Um, we can manipulate hives in a lot of interesting ways. Like we can make new hives from existing strong hives. We can put hives together if one hive is failing. Um, but you all, when you're doing those kind of manipulations, you have to know where the queen is, or at least know there's not a queen in this part of the hive, right? And so, yeah, queen spotting's a skill. Uh, it's one that you have to be very good at if you're gonna be, if you're gonna do a lot of like advanced maneuvers, you've gotta be really good at queen spotting. So like on Monday, I have five hives that are doing very poorly and it's because the genetics from the queen are not great. Um, mm. And so I wanted to replace them. So I had to go into those five hives and find this little, literal needle in a haystack. <laughs> and kill her and then put new queens in. So yeah, you don't have to look for them every day, but um, if you're gonna get good at this, you've gotta be pretty good at queen spotting. Will they become aggressive when you start messing with the queen? No, they can become more aggressive if you're in a hive along, like the longer you're in a hive, the more aggression you're gonna see. Kind of the deeper you get into a hive, the more messing you do, they'll be aggressive. But, you know, once you find the queen, you grab her, you kill her, it takes two seconds and you're moving on. And so it's not like they've noticed their queen is dead and now they're all like attacking you. It's more that you've maybe been in a hive a really long time or dug yeah. really deep. Does the queen have a stinger? She does. Oh, okay. Um, but it is not used to sting predators, usually. <laughs> um, I was in the presence once of someone that got stung by a queen and we both were like, whoa i've never had that happen before um it is used to kill other queens so they're very territorial and so what happens is when a hive goes queenless you know they will make anywhere from 8 12 15 new queens to replace the old queen but the first queen that hatches out goes and stings all the other developing queens and so they don't have the little barb on the end of the stinger so you know um worker bees 
have a little barb stinger that stays in your skin and that's what kills them when they they fly away queens don't have that so if a queen does manage to sting you um she won't die incredible Oh, I love it. Um, let's talk about the future of bees. I know that um, that you're involved in some some sort of conversations about um, pesticides and the conservation of bees. Um, can you tell me about that and some of the the different threats that that we're facing? Yeah. So pesticides, um, you know, unfortunately, is a real big one. You know, there's ways to use, and unfortunately, like you know, if you want to farm on very, very large scale, they, it's hard to have organic sustainable practices when you're farming real big. And unfortunately, like, though we have lots of awesome, small organic farms um, and sustainable farms around Austin, like the vast majority of our, even our food is all grown through monoculture. And so pesticides are just a way of life. You know, there's ways that Europe's actually banned a bunch of the more harsh pesticides that are used. Um, they're just in a lot of ways used really irresponsibly, yeah. um, you know, almost on the calendar and less of like we're treating a problem, but we're just throwing them out there. It's like, it's like giving everybody antibiotics, just make sure you don't get sick, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And just to so, clarify that these pesticides, specifically the, the neonicotinoids, mm-hmm. I practiced saying that. Um, you could say neonics for sure. For thank sure. you. These neonics, um, they attack the nervous system of insects, right? They do, yeah. And neonics are really scary because, you know, a lot of the pesticides that we used, you know, um, in the 50s, for example, like you spray them. If they, you know, touch the pollinator, they're going to cause harm. But you could spray them at night and it would kind of wear off by morning and we'd be good to go. Neonics, a lot of those hang around. They get into the plant, they stay in the soil, they continue to show up in the pollen and the nectar of the blooms for years to come. You know, they move into the water system. So their impact is just a lot stronger and longer lasting than some of these other lower grade pesticides. So pesticides is um, a real big one for sure. And then there's all sorts of pests and disease that we didn't have even 50 years ago in this country that, you know, bees and other countries had, but just because of globalism have made their way here. So the big one that you'll hear about is Varroa mite. If you do any Googling on honeybees, you can't get too far without reading about the Varroa mite. Varroa mite is sort of like ticks, but for honeybees. And they do just real severe damage. And you've got the same issue where beekeepers had a, you know, they showed up in the 90s, early 90s, and beekeepers had this real strong panicked reaction when literally just like half of their colonies would be decimated. And we developed these miticides, but then again, instead of just treating problems, we treat everybody and we treat everybody over frequently. And so the mites develop resistance to these miticides and we have all of these treatments that we can no longer use because they were misused. And it's just this, we are always aiming for eradication when eradication is usually just a goal that's not gonna happen, you know? And so managing it more on an integrated pest management level, using all the tools in the toolbox instead of using this kind of one silver bullet. So Aroa might, is a huge one. Um, particular for native bees, I mentioned, 
habitat loss is has been real bad. There's a couple of species of bumblebees that are definitely you know close to extinction. Um, so habitat loss is a big one for the native species. Yeah. And then um, artificial honey, right? Synthetic alternatives. Is that a concern for uh, the future of bees? Yeah. So it, I mean, it's, it's just real tough on beekeepers. So actually most of the beekeepers in this country don't make their money off of honey because really? you can't, you can't make your money off of honey in this country. Um, because the shelves are full of um, mostly coming from, from Asia, these yes. synthetic alternatives that people don't realize are not actual yeah. agricultural products. The price of honey per pound is, I, I mean, it is so shocking how low it is. And so you've got this like dumping of honey from China. Um, and then people have this expectation and they treat honey as a commodity and they expect just like I go to the store and I can get a 10 pound bag of sugar for, you know, a few dollars that I should be able to get this big ass thing of honey for $3. And um, so it's either not, real honey, you know, or like the quality is like nowhere near what you would get from a local beekeeper. So that's why most beekeepers actually make their money off pollination services. So that's how people mm. do it. They, they put their, their bees on the back of semis and drive around and support this monoculture system. Someone like me, you know, we are small and we will continue to stay. We're the equivalent of your like local, produce stand at the farmer's market, right? So we'll stay small. We have organic practices. We put the health of our bees first, but that means that our honey is going to be always be like low in um, quantity, the highest in quality. And so for us, it's just having to constantly, thankfully, we've done a really good job and we have a community that's really receptive to listening to us explain why, you know, honey should be a dollar minimum or two per ounce, not per pound, <laughs> which is what you find at the grocery store. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and there's plenty of people that aren't ever going to be interested in that message and that's okay. Cause I don't have enough honey to feed the entire population of Texas anyway, but there is, you cannot deny when you come in, if you, have only had grocery store honey. And then you sit down and we put five different honeys that came all within five miles of one another. Like the quality, you can't, you can't deny it. Even if you're interested in those kinds of things, if like, you know, how your animal, the animal was treated before they became your dinner or contributed to your dinner is important to you. If you enjoy food that tastes really good and fresh, then you'll be receptive to that message and thankfully we are really good at that and we've got people that are willing to listen yeah i love the the um attitude of training your competition and not being worried about it i think it's um an overall net positive even if one of those people ends up being your competition i think you're um spreading this thing a lot further than if you just kind of kept those secrets to yourself it reminds me of uh, i spoke to darren joffe in episode two and that's sort of his message is just like educating other people on on how to grow their own food and um, i think he's had a huge impact similarly uh, so if people want to enjoy your honey or if they're in the austin area either visiting or living where should they go 
Yeah, so you can get our honey online. Our stock's a little low in the coffers at this very second, but harvest has started. So we're gonna, you'll start to see a lot of fun new things back in stock on the website. So we'll ship anywhere in the United States. $40 will get you free shipping. And then if you are here in Texas, in the central Texas area, we're open three days a week, come see us. We always have so many fun things going on. You know, the, like I say, we do a monthly infusion. You can jar yourself at the bar. You can sample honey. We do classes and tastings and all that can be found on our website, which is twohiveshoney.com. And you have to spell out the word two. And I recommend, my final recommendation is if you ever start a business, don't include a number in your business name because till the day that you die, you will say the numerical or like spell it out. <laughs> Because <laughs> no one will ever find you otherwise. I'm sorry about that. I'll include that link uh, with the episode. But uh, Tara, thank you so much. I think you're doing really cool work, and uh, this I've learned a lot here in the last yeah. hour. So I appreciate. I hope when you come back to visit your aunt Wendy, I hope you'll come see us. Yeah, that'd be great. I think I'm going to be yep. back in uh, November for a little while, so I'll see if I can oh, stop cool. by. Yeah, we've got a lot of November's kind of our. Our, our favorite month because it's we're finally out of Satan's den of heat here in Texas and um, it's before you know the holidays and so we have lots of fun things going on remember nice support local hunting people yes please thanks Tara <laughs> thanks so much